Before we pray, let's turn quickly to a verse in uh, Psalm 144. Dave gave an example of what I like to call nutshell outlines in his uh, in the uh, Samson's riddle. There's a number of others in Scripture, and this uh, this uh, hymn, of course, refers to Psalm 8, doesn't it? But there's a beautiful corollary that commentators have pointed out. Um, if we look at Psalm 144 before we get to Psalm 8, we get that uh, uh, beautiful illustration. Look in Psalm 144, and it says in verse 3, Lord, what is man? Now, Mr. Darby in his translation points out that that's the word Adam. In other words, man was created a noble creature, the head of the lower creation, the center, and head of the lower creation. Lord, what is man, or Adam, that thou takest knowledge of him? Or the son of man, that's Enosh, poor, weak, fallen man that thou shouldst make account of him. Those are the Hebrew words as I understand. Now look back on Psalm 8, if you would, please. And we get the uh, converse of this, another nutshell outline. There's many of them in Scripture. Psalm 8, what we were just singing about, and verse 4. Lord, what is man, Enosh, that thou art mindful of him, and the son of Adam, that thou visitest him. So man began, the first man began as Adam, and he descended to Enosh. The last man, the Lord Jesus Christ, took man up in the Enosh condition and raised him up to the last Adam, the head of a new creation. Let's bow our heads. Blessed God our Father, we thank thee for the moments we've had over thy precious word. We thank thee for the treasure it is who now hast entrusted us with the treasures of thy counsels and connected with thy, thy person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank thee and bless thee that thou hast entrusted us with such tremendous privileges. We pray now as we're instructed in Scripture that we would walk worthy of the calling wherewith we are called. Pray for help now for the next uh, few minutes as we cover a, a fundamental passage in Scripture, Daniel 70 Weeks. Pray these things now for the praise and honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, Daniel 70 weeks. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 9. Now I'm going to read this in the new translation. Um, I don't always read in the new translation. I always read the new translation generally, but in public, remember that Mr. Darby said we want to be careful that we don't become critical readers. Uh, trying to parse every word as if we really knew the Greek, which we don't, or the Hebrew. But uh, I, we, we appreciate the accuracy of a new translation. But in this instance particularly, in uh, Daniel chapter 9, remember the translators uh, didn't understand dispensationalism at all. So they don't have a very good translation of this passage. So when it was uh, translated later on, it was much more clear in the Darby translation. So let's, uh, I'll read it in, uh, in uh, the Darby translation, Daniel chapter 9, where we have the 70 weeks of, of Daniel. The translation here. Okay, Daniel chapter 9, 
And I'll begin with verse uh, 24. I might say before we read this, uh, some of us were speaking about this between the meetings, but the revelation was given only after the exercise of Daniel in the first uh, part of the chapter, of chapter 9. And again, we spoke about that. It's not only a matter of understanding prophecy, it's a matter of the heart and a matter of the conscience. That we realize that these things are of God and they have eternal weight and value. And uh, we want by God's grace to love the truth. So that's the exercise we have in the early part of chapter 9. And then as a result of that, this new light, this light was given to Daniel. And let's read that then, beginning in verse 24. Again, I'll read it in the New Translation because it's uh, more clear. Seventy weeks are apportioned out upon thy people and upon thy holy city to close the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make expiation for iniquity and to bring in the righteousness of the ages and to seal the vision and prophet and to anoint the holy of holies. Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the word to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince are seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street and the moat shall be built again even in troublous times. And after the sixty-two weeks shall Messiah be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the Prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with an overflow and unto the end war desolations determined. And he shall confirm a covenant, that's the prince, with the many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And because of the protection of abominations, there shall be a desolator, even until the consummation, and what is determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. Now let me get uh, adjusted here a little bit. Bible's on the same page. This is sometimes called the backbone of prophecy. One of the great uh, outlines we have of prophecy. I want to speak about the annual 70 week generally and then emphasize the 70th week, uh, which we sometimes call the tribulation. Okay, this chart is in that handout that we gave. This is an interesting chart. It kind of puts some things in perspective. We're expanding a little bit from Daniel's 70 weeks. But Daniel's 70 weeks, I might just mention, here you can see that. Here's, here's the first 69 weeks of Daniel. And then here's the 70th week of Daniel. And it's separated by the church period. The, uh, one of the great dispensational parentheses we talk about. When we talk about dispensationalism, it's been a great help to me to see that there is a progression in dispensation, that we looked at that somewhat this morning. And there's a progression here, as we'll see. But there's also some parentheses in dispensational understanding. And unless we understand where those parentheses belong, there's actually, I feel there's as many as three here. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit. But it's so helpful to understand the, uh, where the parentheses are, which really have to do more with God's ways except for the first one here, rather than uh, his counsel. 
But let's look at this a little broader scope here. Go all the way back to Noah here. We talked about the uh, Noahic covenant this morning. That's when the government was instituted on the earth. That's where government takes place. And we see that with Moses, well, actually we see there's two things here. There's calling and there's government. These are two helpful dispensational principles. And so the principle of calling of a special people, an adopted people, it's called, began with Abraham. The Jews were adopted. Israel, I should say, really was adopted. And then with Moses at Sinai, uh, government was entrusted to them. And so for a time, Israel enjoyed both calling, divine calling, and also they were the center of God's earthly government. And so we see that there. That government ended, we alluded to this this morning, but that government ended in uh, 605 B.C. approximately, uh, when the, uh, the Jews, because they were unfaithful, they lost the Lord's presence. The Shekinah glory went back home, went back to heaven. Uh, they were so unfaithful that for the Lord to continue on uh, in his relationship with them, his outward relationship with them, would have really been a lie and a dishonor to himself. So earthly government with Israel at the center ceased when the Shekinah glory went back to heaven and we know Nebuchadnezzar came in. We read about in Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah especially, we read about a time called the times of the Gentiles. Uh, there's that expression. We've used that a few times already, but it's important to recognize uh, this principle, the times of the Gentiles. I think that is a parenthesis because God's purpose and God's counsel is that Israel will be the center of his earthly government. But that's been suspended ever since about 605, as I mentioned, because of their faithfulness and it's been entrusted now to the Gentiles. Now within that period, some years later, about 150 years later, we have the beginning of Daniel's 70 weeks. This is a period that began, we'll look at that in the next slide, but it began uh, in Nehemiah's day with the uh, command to, to rebuild Jerusalem. So it was a period of about, if I remember right, about 150 years later. That begins Daniel's 70 weeks. And the word weeks uh, is a word, it's, it's in the Hebrew, I understand, it's called heptat. Mr. Kelly points that out in his writings. It really just means a period of seven. There were many periods of seven that the Jews were familiar with. Seven days in a week, that's true. But then there was um, a seven years, and seven years after seven years, there was a sabbatical. And after seven times seven years, there was the year of Jubilee, that's the 50th year. So they were familiar with a number of heptads, and that's, uh, this is simply another heptad. So when we say the 70 weeks of Daniel, it's evident that it's not weeks of days, but rather it's weeks of years. The heptad, you may should say, of years. So here we have the 69 weeks, in fact, we'll look at the detail a little bit later, but the 69 weeks began in Nehemiah's day, and it went, out, went on uh, without uh, a miss for 69, or we would say 493 years. So there's the 69 years. 
And then, because Israel rejected their Messiah, how could they be brought into blessing? And as a result, there's been this parenthesis of the present period, which is the church period, called the heavenly calling here. That's another dispensational parenthesis. Uh, it was never understood in the Old Testament. Uh, it was uh, uh, hidden God, as we've mentioned, according to the... Uh, according to a verse in Ephesians chapter 3. So here's Daniel, Daniel's 70 weeks. It's interrupted between the 69th and the 70th weeks. This is the period in which we live. The Lord Jesus came into this world um, about, there's some question about exactly when the 69 weeks ended. Uh, some people think it was his birth, but I think uh, more people think perhaps it was the beginning of his ministry. And Mr. Darby actually speaks about a mystical half-week uh, during the Lord's ministry. But of course, the Jews don't recognize that. So there's a little difference of thought there. My impression is that's probably the most correct. Probably began with the Lord's public ministry. But people vary on that a little bit. Some people would take it all the way to the cross, some to the incarnation. But anyway, it's uh, about that period of time. Another thing we want to mention, we have some other things mentioned here. The Mosaic system, which was the law, began under Moses, uh, the legal covenant, Mosaic covenant. And uh, we know it was superseded with the rejection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the introduction of Christianity. Um, at the same time, some people have mentioned this age. This is an expression we often hear in the uh, Gospels, is this age is the age of, Mos of Moses, or the age of law. As far as this world is concerned, the Mosaic age is still going on. Because the age to come, according to Scripture, is the age of Messiah. So when the law ends, according to the thinking of the Jews, and again, I believe we only have this expression in the Gospels, if I remember right, when this, uh, when this period ends, the next period is the age to come, which is the age of the Messiah, and that's when the Lord Jesus appears and he introduces the age to come. He's going to set up the kingdom, as we've spoken a number of times. Okay, you have that chart. I mentioned three parentheses here. One, of course, is the church, never mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, and that's the interruption between the 69th and 70th weeks of Daniel. Another parenthesis then is the uh, times of the Gentiles. It wasn't according to God's purposes, and we can see that will end when the Lord Jesus comes out of heaven again, and he will again set up Israel as his, uh, the center of his earthly government. There you have government in Israel. And then I, I, I believe there's a third parenthesis, because the law, according to the book of Galatians in chapter 3, was never part of the counsels of God. It came in because of transgression, it says. And uh, there's not blessing from law giving, although in a certain sense, what we have in the Old Testament, we've often said we live in a farming area in Spokane, and uh, my son-in-law is a farmer. We often say that the Old Testament is the plowing up and preparing of the soil. And then the New Testament is the, uh, the new seed planted, and then it fruits up in Christianity. But in the Old Testament, we do have, like I think Dave was saying, um, even things that seem hard, 
an end in blessing. Uh, the law uh, was given by Moses. And uh, people that struggle under the law, they find the blessing in Christianity. So even the law giving can be a source of blessing. But the law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Okay, a little bit more complicated than some of the tables. Let's now move on. Can you put that? Go to the next slide. Oh, there we go. Okay, did Paul get that, or maybe the battery's dying a little or something? Okay. All right, here we have the 70 weeks of Daniel. There's the 69 weeks. There's the beginning. What does that say? 405, 455. So about 150 years after the times of the Gentiles began. The uh, 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 69 weeks of Daniel are broken up into two main parts. Uh, The first is seven weeks, that's 49 years. And then the second part is the remainder of the 63 weeks. But the seven weeks is something that ought to be an encouragement to us because the Lord valued the return of that little remnant in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. The Lord values a return in heart to first principles. So even though they were not all Israel, they were of all Israel. That's what a remnant is. It's not all of the of Israel in this case, but it is a remnant of the whole, and in many cases represents the whole. And so those first seven weeks uh, speak to the return under Ezra and Nehemiah, especially, specifically, 455 was when the word went out for Nehemiah to, uh, to return and rebuild the city. And then that went on without missing a beat until as we say, probably the time that the Lord Jesus went out into his public ministry. Well, let's look at the 69th, uh, the 70th week of Daniel a little bit more. I want to mention in verse 24, there's six promises that are made. What's going to happen at the end of the 70th week of Daniel? Well, there's six promises. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city. To finish transgression, what does that mean? Well, the transgression of Israel is going to come at an end when they repent of their sin. To make an end of sin, that's the end of their chastisement. The chastisement of Israel is ended, the second promise. And to make reconciliation, or the margin again says atonement, for iniquity. The basis of their blessing in the future is the atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ, which of course happened at the cross. And to bring in everlasting righteousness. Well, that's when government is in the hands of our Lord Jesus Christ during the the kingdom period, the millennium. And to seal up the vision and prophecy. That means that there's going to be a fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet concerning Israel. God is the Almighty God, and He's going to fulfill all those promises He made to Israel. And then finally, and to anoint the Holy of Holies, as we read before, 
that means the millennial worship is going to be set up again, one that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. Not mere ceremonies, but that which honors the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are the six promises we have. Let's go through this in a little more detail again. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment, verse 25, to restore and to build uh, Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks. That's the seven week or 49 years we spoke about. Uh, and notice what it says there. Uh, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. Well, that happened in Nehemiah chapter 2. Not in Ezra's day per se. This was a little bit later in Nehemiah's day. Uh, unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. So there we have 69 weeks of years, or uh, 483 years. And the wall, uh, the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troubled times. Of course, that refers to the first seven weeks, or 49 years. And after threescore and two weeks, that's that second period, so 483 years total, shall Messiah be cut off. It doesn't say exactly at 63 weeks Messiah would be cut off, but after threescore and two weeks, which is 62 weeks of years, or again, 483 years if you add the seven weeks in at the beginning, shall Messiah be cut off, and it should read, and have nothing all the promises made to Israel, in a sense, were suspended because their Messiah was rejected. There could be no blessing for them on that basis. And the people of the prince that shall come, who's the prince that shall come? Well, that's the head of the revived Roman Empire. Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood until the end of the war uh, desolations are determined. Again, the translation's a little challenging here, but the, the people of the prince that shall come, well, that was Titus we were speaking about this morning. Uh, Titus destroyed the city in 70 AD, and uh, I don't know if we have that up here. Okay, about 29 AD, and uh, yeah, I don't see the... the uh, time when uh, Titus destroyed the city, but it was about 70 A.D. he destroyed Jerusalem. He was the people of the prince that shall come. It doesn't say the prince that shall come, but it was the Romans. The Romans are going to be revived in the future, but it was the Roman prince, uh, Titus, who was a general at the time and later an emperor over the Roman Empire. Um, he, uh, he's the one who destroyed the city. And then uh, verse 27, and he, who's he? Well, that's the prince that's going to come. The head of the revived Roman Empire at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Now we've skipped way over uh, from the 69th week to the 70th week. The church period comes in between verses 26 and 27, between the 69th and 70th weeks. And he shall confirm, it should read, a covenant, with the many for one week. This is what begins the tribulation period, when this head of the revived Roman Empire makes a covenant with the mass of the Jews, the unbelieving Jews. That's what begins the 70th week of Daniel. The church period is over. The church period ends with the rapture, per se, 
although we know that the uh, false church, the anti-church, goes on for another three and a half years. But then we have the uh, 70th week of Daniel. So he shall, that is the prince of the coming Roman Empire, revived Roman Empire, shall confirm a covenant, that's a covenant for protection, with the many for one week or seven years, as with the seven years of the tribulation period, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abomination, that means because of idolatry, the Jews will become idol worshippers again, beginning in the middle of the tribulation period. We'll go into that a little bit more. And for the overspreading of abominations, there shall be a desolator. The desolator is what we call the king of the north, who will come in about 1260 days from the middle of the tribulation period. Even until the consummation, that's the time when the king of the north comes down and decimates the land of Israel. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. That's Israel and Jerusalem. Well, there's a lot there. Let's go ahead and move on to the next slide. We'll break it down a little bit more. We want to talk about Daniel 70th week. Daniel 70th week, we can really divide into three parts, more or less, although technically just two parts, and the third part is actually right at the end of the week. But here we have the beginning of sorrows. That's uh, the first half, first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Then we have the uh, Great Tribulation. That's the last half of the Tribulation period. We see here a little more detail. Daniel's 70th week begins with a covenant made with the Jews. That's just what we read about. He shall make a, a covenant with the many for one week. A covenant of protection. It's the West, the revived Roman Empire, which would be Western Europe, and perhaps North and even perhaps South America. We'll make a covenant with the Jews for protection. Because as we well know, the Jews are surrounded by Arab neighbors who hate them. And in the book of uh, the, the Quran, which is the holy book of Islam, they refuse to recognize Israel's right to exist. It's a real, uh, a real point of, of, a, of a controversy with the Jews. The Arabs say, well, we want to be peaceful. And the Jews say, okay, take out of the Quran that it says we don't have a right to exist. Oh, no, we can't do that. That's a holy book. So the Jews say, well, okay, it's going to be hard for us to make peace with you as long as you refuse to recognize our right to exist. So nonetheless, that's what's going to happen. So we have these three, four periods of days. Three periods particularly are mentioned in Scripture. The fourth is one we basically understand when the Lord comes and appears. We're going to break this down a little bit more. We read about the king of the south. And that would be a confederacy led by Egypt, an Arab confederacy led by Egypt. We read about the king of the north. That's an Arab confederacy uh, led by, uh, who's called the king of the north? We're not exactly sure who that is. It might be Iraq. It might be, uh, uh, some people say Turkey, but I think probably more Iraq. Uh, when these things were written, when the old brothers wrote about them, the Ottoman Empire was still in power. And so they talked about Turkey, because the Ottoman Empire was covered what we call modern-day Turkey, but also the Ottoman Empire had uh, influence over much of Africa at that time in the Mideast, although they were receding by that time. And you remember, 
in World War I, they were one of the Axis powers, along with uh, uh, Germany and Austria. And they were defeated in World War I, and as a result, they began to break up the Ottoman Empire. So when the old writers talk about Turkey, uh, it's not quite the same as we talk about Turkey. So it may be Turkey, the king of the north, leading the Arab Confederacy. Perhaps it's Iraq. I wouldn't be dogmatic one way or the other. And as we know from Daniel, I believe it's Daniel 8, the real power behind the king of the north is Gog, uh, which is the leader of the, uh, of the Russians, uh, the Russian Empire. So we'll talk about that. Here we see Gog over here. We see this indignation period. We have another name for that. Some of you young people know the name for that. That 75-day period at the end of the uh, 70th week of Daniel and really the beginning of the millennium has a, another name that we often hear. Who knows that? Remember? Starts with an A. Remember? Armageddon. We'll talk about Armageddon. Okay, let's break this week now, uh, down a little bit more. We'll talk about the three parts then. I want to talk about the beginning of sorrow. I want to talk about the second half, the Great Tribulation, and then we'll talk about the indignation, the uh, third part. All right, signs of the times. That question was asked in the last meeting. Is prophecy being uh, fulfilled right now? And I think, of course, Dave gave a good answer. The answer simply is no. And yet, at the same time, there are certain signs of the times. There are certain things that are going to happen uh, that uh, indicate that we're in the last days. Uh, one is, again, we can look at the three parts of, the, uh, of dispensationalism, the three people groups we spoke about this morning. As far as the church goes, what do we expect? What are some of the signs of the times? Well, a Laodicean attitude. That means lukewarm. They were lukewarm. Apparently in Laodicea, they used to uh, get their, I understand they got their waters from the hills, and they used conveyances to get it to the, uh, to the city. And along the way, that water would get pretty warm. And so it was known because it was lukewarm by the time it finally got to the people. They always had lukewarm water. They didn't have hot water, they didn't have cold water, it was always lukewarm. So Laodicea is characterized by lukewarmness. Just think of the tremendous entrusted deposit we were speaking about this morning. Why is it that as Christians we're not more enthusiastic and zealous about it? It's because of a lukewarm attitude, and it affects us too, doesn't it? In order to overcome that, we have to be in the Lord's presence day by day and moment by moment. That's the great secret to uh, being an overcomer, is to walk in the Lord's presence. And the Lord wants that for us. That's the pathway of blessing. That's the pathway of happiness. So a Laodicea in attitude. And we see that. Well, some people say, uh, well, they say, look at what's happening in the Southern Hemisphere. There's some blessing going on, and we're so thankful for that in Brazil and other places. And yet, I understand that only 20% of the world lives in the Southern Hemisphere. What about the 80% that live in the Northern Hemisphere? It's largely Laodicean. And so we have that in the uh, third chapter of Revelation, as we mentioned here. And in Romans 11, that Dave was speaking about before, the time is going to come when the Gentiles who were entrusted with church truth, called the fullness of the Gentiles, there's a difference between the times of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles. 
The fullness of the Gentiles, as mentioned in Romans 11, is the church period. It's the time when God has called out of the Gentiles a people for his own, as we have in uh, Acts 15. So this period, the church period, is primarily uh, a Gentile period. The church is primarily Gentiles. So the, the uh, fullness of the Gentiles is going to end because of our unfaithfulness. And at that time, then, the Lord is going to restore Israel. And that line we talked about this morning, that's going to start up again after the church is gone. God is going to take up Israel again. Ecumenical movement. That's another sign we see of the church. What do we mean by the ecumenical movement? Well, I refer to Revelation 17, verse 5. Remember the harlot? What does the harlot mean? Let's look at that verse real quickly because I think it's a help. Revelation 17. Revelation 17 and verse 5, I mentioned here, and upon her forehead, this is sometimes called the anti-church. This is the church system that's going to be on the earth after the rapture. True church is gone at the end of the rapture. But after the church, true church is gone, there's going to be an ecumenical system that goes on. Do we see that today? Absolutely, we see some of that today. We see, as the old brother used to say, the stage is being set. Is prophecy being fulfilled per se? No, probably not, but the stage is being set. If you go to a play, uh, we went to a play, our daughter wanted us to go to a play here a month or so ago, hadn't been for a long time, and uh, before the actors came out, there were some stage hands that were scurrying around and setting up the stage. And we could see the stage being set. So as the old brother used to tell us, that in many respects the stage is being set, but the actors aren't in place yet. And that's what we have. Is the church legacy in? Yes, by and large. Is it about the time when uh, the times of the, uh, the uh, fullness of the Gentiles is coming to an end? Uh, yes, Israel's about to be grafted back in to the olive tree, which speaks of the uh, position of blessing on this world. Uh, right now, the Gentiles are in the position of blessing under the gospel. When the church period is over, the Lord is going to take up the Jews again, and they're going to be, uh, they're going to be in the position of, of blessing, uh, outward blessing on the earth. Ecumenical, do we see that all around? I'm going to read something. I felt quite striking. Um, by a man named Malcolm Muggeridge. He was quoted by somebody else. I don't remember exactly where I read it. No, I think I read it in uh, William MacDonald's book, his devotional, which is one of my favorite devotionals, if you have a chance to read William MacDonald's devotional. A beautiful little but here he quotes from Malcolm Muggeridge. He said, by one of our time's larger ironies, ecumenical, ecumenicalism is triumphant just when there is nothing to be ecumenical about. The various religious bodies are likely to find it easy to join together only because believing little, they correspondingly differ about little. Isn't that striking? Let me read that again. By one of our time's larger ironies, ecumenicalism is triumphant just when there is nothing to be ecumenical about. The various religious bodies are likely to find it easy to join together 
only because believing little, they correspondingly differ about little. And that's certainly true. Billy Graham, dear man that he was, stated at the beginning of his ministry that one of his prime motivations in his ministry was the ecumenical movement, to gather together the different elements of Christianity into one strong group. Sad to say he was too successful about that in spite of the fact that he was a faithful gospel preacher. And so we see ecumenicalism all around. And so if we look at uh, Revelation chapter 17 again, notice what it says, verse 5. And upon her forehead, this is the anti-church after the rapture, when the true church is gone, upon her forehead was a name written. Now here's one of the mysteries we have in the New Testament we were speaking about this morning. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. What does it mean, the mother of harlots? What's happening in the ecumenical movement, which means a combined mass of the different groups of Christendom, is that they're coming back to Mother Rome. That's the ecumenical movement. We see it all around us, don't we? It's a sign of the times, I really believe, this great ecumenical movement. She's the mother of harlots. After giving up the truth, they're no better than a harlot. They're all coming back to Mother Rome. The uh, Reformation is being reversed, and that's a common theme in Christendom today. They think it's the one body, but it's not the one body at all because they've given up fundamental truths of Christianity. Signs of the time, the stage being set. How about Israel? Well, there's an interesting verse in uh, Luke. Again, we'll not have time to look at it. By the way, I do have some pamphlets. Um, I asked, uh, called up my brother Bruce uh, Ansey, and I told him I wanted to give a little talk on the 70 weeks, and he's got a little pamphlet. I said, uh, I said, could you send me some of those? He said, I'd be happy to pay for them. He said, I'll send you 40 of them, but I'm not going to let you pay for them. So after I'm done, I'll give you a copy of that. It covers a lot of the, uh, not, not this stuff so much, but it covers some of the things we're speaking about. It gives a brief overview of Daniel's 70th week. And of the whole... 70 weeks, actually, so I have that available afterwards. But the fig tree, what is the fig tree? Dave spoke about the vineyard this morning. Israel is seen in three, three different types of plants, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine, and they all have different meanings. But the fig tree is one of the meanings of Israel. And in Luke 21, it says, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. What does that mean? The fig tree, of course, is Israel. Is Israel back in the land? How about you girls? Can you help? What's the answer? Are you listening? Okay, let's try to listen, okay. What's the fig tree? Scripture speaks of the fig tree. Who's it speaking about? Who can help us? The nation. Pardon? It's the nation. The nation of who? Of Israel. Israel, right. Who are all the trees? The fig tree and all the trees. Who are all the trees? The nations around Israel. The nations around Israel. The Arab nations, right? And that's an interesting thing. I have a map at home that shows when these nations reemerged. Did you know that most of those nations had been blended into one great empire called the Ottoman Empire? The Ottoman Empire was a Turkish empire. It began, uh, I don't know when, about 1100 or 1200. A.D., 
and it lasted for several hundred years. It climaxed about 1452 with the fall of Constantinople, and then uh, and that was the spread of Islam um, during that time. And they basically blended all of North Africa and the Mideast into one empire called the Ottoman Empire. But then the empire began to recede. Uh, it began to fall by the wayside. And as a result, um, it receded and receded. Nations began to reemerge that had been lost for many, many years. So I remember right, I don't think, uh, I think Egypt only reemerged about 1880. It had been lost as an independent nation for a number of years. The other countries, um, Lebanon, uh, what they call Transjordan, after World War I, when uh, the Ottoman Empire was uh, defeated as one of the Axis powers in World War I, uh, they, the, the British and some of the other allies divided up that uh, area in the Mideast, and these nations began to reemerge. And that's uh, when there was a great... Uh, emphasis on supporting Jews to return to their homeland. They wanted a homeland. And some of the other nations emerged about that time. What's the capital of uh, the country of Jordan? Any people help me with that? Remember the name of the capital of Jordan? Interesting name, a biblical name. Amman, right. Ammon, Moab and Ammon. If you look at the map, you'll see that the, the modern country of uh, Jordan is made up of three ancient countries, Moab, Ammon, and Edom. And their capital is Amman, after uh, one of their progenitors, Ammon. So these countries have reemerged only in the last, uh, what would it be, 140 years or so. So behold the fig tree. Israel is recognized again. They had their 50th anniversary here not long ago. They became a nation in 1948. Um, the fig tree and all the trees. Here's another sign of the times that we look for. These are things that are going to happen early in the 70th week, but the stage is already being set. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. The covenant with the political Babylon. Uh, that's another thing. Uh, we mentioned um, the West uh, is very sympathetic towards Israel. We see that, don't we? It says that's going to happen. And the West is what supports Israel against the Arab nations. The Arab nations, as we mentioned, uh, refuse to recognize Israel's right to exist. But the West has supported, and as we read in Daniel 9.27a, in the beginning of the tribulation period, there's going to be that definite covenant with political Babylon. That's what begins the tribulation period, the seven-year period. All right, that's Israel. How about the Gentiles? We mentioned all the trees here. The Arab neighbors have been re-emerging in recent years. Mr. Kelly has an interesting statement. I think it's in Isaiah, his book in Isaiah. He says that nations like men will be resurrected. And so in the last days, these nations are re-emerging and uh, they're going to be judged uh, according uh, uh, they're going to be judged again uh, in these last days. So these nations are re-emerging. So we have all the fig trees. We have political Babylon, which is the revived Roman Empire. Um, pretty much the, uh, the Western Europe, what we call the West. And as I said, perhaps uh, North America and South America. Why do we say that? 
because North America and South America are largely populated by people from Europe. And so perhaps that's true. We can't be too dogmatic about that, but that's commonly believed. And then we have another great power that's going to emerge, emerge and that's Russia, spoken of as Gog and Magog. Perhaps Gog is the leader, Magog is the country. Some people say both are parts of geographical areas, but it certainly refers to Russia, and we read about that in Ezekiel 38. So these things are signs of the times. We can see them in our day. We can see these things beginning to happen. We can see political Babylon emerging. You can imagine just uh, not that many years ago that, uh, that Germany and France were at each other's throats. And now they're all part of the European Union. They have the same court system. They, uh, you don't have to have a passport when you go from one country to another if you're a member of one of those countries. They have the same currency. So they be, they becoming, uh, they're becoming a part of this revived, revived Roman Empire. Wonderful, interesting truth. Mr. Wilson, who uh, some of you remember, Ginger was mentioning him earlier. I never met the man, but I've read some of his writings. He used to write in Christian truth, and he used to thrill about the things that were happening in the Mideast. What would he say today? and the things that were happening in Europe. He started to see some of these things emerging. Now he wrote, I don't know when he passed away, mid-1960s maybe? 64. Um, pardon? 64. 64, okay. So he wrote in the 50s and 60s mainly, I would guess. And he was starting to see some of these things emerge. And he was thrilled at the thought that these were signs of the times that were going to happen and come to their strength and apex in the earliest early part of the 70th week of Daniel. These things have developed dramatically in the last 50 years. And we can be so thankful these things. They're signs of the times. Signs that the Lord Jesus is going to come soon. Now, nothing has to happen before the Lord comes. But the more we see these things that are going to happen after the rapture, we know the Lord's coming is imminent. And that's exactly what's happening. So this is the stage that's being set. Is prophecy being fulfilled per se? No, but the stage is being set. How could there be any doubt about that? We live in the very last closing days of the church period. All right, what about the middle of the week of Daniel? We talked about the beginning of the week. Interestingly enough, in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel, there's a triple apostasy, and it's important to understand that. The anti-church is judged. I don't have time to read all the verses, but there you get some references in Revelation 17, 15 through 18, 24. We see that Satan, after three and a half years of the tribulation, it's at least three and a half years after the rapture, he says, I have no use for anything that calls itself the church. It's a false church. It's an anti-church. But Satan has no use for it. He used it for a time. Uh, it's a great hoax. But by the middle of the 70th week of Daniel, he said, they have no use for it. It still bears the name of Christ, even though it's a sham, and it's going to be destroyed in the middle of the week after three and a half years. Here's again the three people groups we talked about this morning. How about Israel? Well, in Daniel chapter 9 again, let's look at that again, we see the apostasy of Judaism. They turn to idolatry again after those first three and a half years. 
Now the beast, the head of the revived Roman Empire, allows them to carry on with their ceremonies during the first half of the tribulation period. In fact, they even have their temple again. But the Jews are there in unbelief. And the temple ceremonies are sham ceremonies. And so in the middle of the tribulation period, as we read about in Daniel 9, we read, Daniel 9:27b, he shall confirm a covenant with the many for one week. That's the head of the revived Roman Empire with the, uh, with the unbelieving Jews. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. That means that the Jewish ceremonies are terminated. Satan also says, I have no use for anything that even has any, even smacks anything of God whatsoever. We're going to do away with Judaism. And what's going to replace that? What's going to be the religion of the West that displaces both Christianity, <coughs> even though it was a false Christianity, and what's going to replace, displace Judaism? We read about it in the end of Daniel, uh, verse 27 of Daniel 9. For the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. The abomination means idolatry. There's going to be an idol set up in the temple and men in the West are going to be forced to worship the image of the beast. And of Satan too, the dragon, they're going to have to worship the image of the beast. It's going to be a religion of idolatry that replaces the uh, apostate church, replaces apostate Judaism. There's a third apostasy in the middle of the week. Read about that in Revelation 17, verses 11 through 13. Let's go ahead and look at that. Again, this is uh, given in the little booklet here to a certain extent, not quite laid out this way, but look at what we have in Revelation 17, uh, verse 11. And the beast that was, this is speaking about the Roman Empire, the revived Roman Empire, and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. Apparently there's a crisis in the revived Roman Empire, and before this crisis, the powers that be, as we mentioned this morning, beginning with Noah, are ordained of God. But at this time, the uh, Gentiles, uh, the uh, revived Roman Empire, is going to be empowered by the bottomless pit, by Satan himself. I guess I didn't find that verse. It's in the 13th chapter. It goes on for 42 months. And the government, we call that governmental apostasy because God is no longer recognized in any fashion or form. The uh, authority for the, uh, the uh, revised Roman Empire in the middle of the week will be Satan in the bottomless pit. So there's a triple apostasy. Apostasy of the church, apostasy of Judaism, and apostasy of government. Uh, which had been entrusted to the Gentiles. This all happens in the middle of the tribulation week. Okay, also in the middle of the tribulation week, then, uh, we see that we enter the period called the Great Tribulation that Dave mentioned this morning. The first half of the tribulation is called what? Who remembers the young people? What's the first half of the tribulation called? You get it in the Olivet Discourse. The beginning... 
The beginning of sorrows. That's when you have the first six seals in Revelation chapter 6. They take place during the beginning of sorrows. And in fact, if you read carefully the Olivet uh, Discourse, you can see the six seals there. But that's a little more detail than we want to go into now. What happens late at the end of the uh, tribulation period? What we call Armageddon. A great battle of about 75 days is going to bring this whole thing to a climax and is going to end with the Lord Jesus setting up the kingdom. What happens? What are the different figures here? Again, we don't have time to go into detail on this, but let's uh, look at what happens. Um, I guess it doesn't have a reference here. The best reference would be Daniel chapter 11. Uh, you get the uh, different, what is it, verse 36 or so it begins. You get the different forces that happen. The first thing that happens in Armageddon is that the king of the south will come up into the land of Israel. So here we have number one. The king of the south, remember that's Egypt and its Arab neighbors, an Egyptian confederacy. They come up against the Antichrist, who's the head of, the, of Israel at that time. The second thing that happens in Armageddon, the king of the north will come down through the land and decimate it. That's the desolator we are reading about. Because of the overshadowing of abominations in Daniel chapter 9, there shall be a, decimate, a desolator is the better way, even unto the consummation. The consummation refers to that time when the king of the north, who's, the, uh, who, who's an, Arab, an Arab north of Israel, he comes down with his Arab confederates and they decimate Israel. They destroy two-thirds of those in the land of Israel are destroyed. He comes down and uh, he enters into Egypt. He goes all the way down and uh, attacks the Egyptians, the king of the south. And then number three, while the king of the north is entering Egypt, the western powers under the beast will come from the west. So here we have the uh, revived Roman Empire coming to try to help his ally, Israel. And uh, when he comes, he finds something that surprises him. And that's what we have in number four. At which time, the Lord comes out of heaven and judges them. He destroys the powers of the Western Confederacy, the revived Roman Empire, and also he uh, takes the beast, the head of the revived Roman Empire, the Antichrist, and he casts them immediately into the lake of fire. And then we have number five. The king of the north returns into the land and is destroyed by the Lord. So here the uh, king of the north. Um, this is number two. You don't see that. Maybe that says number two there. But after he goes down into Egypt, he hears tidings from the north and the east. He comes back up to try to retake the land of Israel, but he knows not that the Lord is there. And the Lord is going to destroy him. At that point, the king of the north was destroyed. All right. A couple more things during Armageddon. It's only about a 75-day period, uh, broken into different periods. Uh, when the remnant of the 12 tribes of Israel are dwelling in their promised land, under the protection of the Lord, Gog and his enormous confederacy, uh, who gather in the land of Edom, will mount an attack on Israel. So Gog, or Russia, 
is the power behind the king of the north. The king of the north has been destroyed, but God is going to come down when he sees what he thinks is a vacuum here. He's going to come down and he's going to try to take Israel. When he tries to do that, nonetheless, the Lord roars out of Zion and destroys them before they actually enter the land. They're destroyed in the land of Edom, which we said is part of modern uh, Jordan. And then finally, the Lord will defend Israel and destroy those godless armies, after which the armies um, of restored Israel will put down any remaining people in their promised inheritance. So that's the final act in the war of Armageddon. They're going to go out and clear the land, really, that, that was promised to Abraham. It goes all the way to the Euphrates River. It's going to be part of restored Israel during the period of the kingdom. All right, here's a summary again. We see, uh, again, the beginning of sorrows we talked about. We see the middle of the week. And we see some periods of time. Um, 1260 days, or times, times, and a half a time we read about in Daniel chapter 12, that marks the beginning of the indignation period. The king of the north and the king of the south begin the great battle, which is part of the war of Armageddon. The war of Armageddon, as we saw, has different parts to it. And then 1278 days approximately is when the Lord appears. Um, that would mark the end of the 70th week of Daniel, 1290 days. This is when the king of the north returns from Egypt and he's destroyed by the Lord after he had been down uh, in Egypt. And then after a period, the 10 tribes of Israel are returned. The two tribes are already in the land. The 10 tribes are awakened, resurrected, and they come to the land, but most of them are rebels. And the rebels uh, nine out of the ten, nine-tenths nine of the rebels remain in the land of Edom outside the borders of Israel. Only one-tenth goes into the land. And at 1,335 days, according to Daniel 12, God comes down, he attacks Israel, and also the rebels of the ten tribes are destroyed at the same time. That's called the vintage judgment. The harvest judgment is the time when the Lord Jesus appears and he sends the angels throughout the West to uh, take uh, out of the land those who are not real. Uh, many are taken. That's when it speaks about two are at the mill. One is taken, the other is left. The one that's taken is taken in judgment. The one that's left is left to populate the millennial earth. That's called the harvest judgment. Again, that's perhaps a little more detail. But that happens when the Lord Jesus appears his angels go out throughout western, the west, and they, uh, the harvest judgment takes place. The vintage judgment takes place then at the end of these 1,335 days. Okay, running out of time here. That's what I had to cover. Comments or questions? I realize some of these things are maybe a little challenging, but if you look into them, you'll be able to make sense out of them, I think. Jonathan? Yeah, what would be a correct viewpoint of Israel, or the Jews in the land of Israel now? It seems like the covenantal view would say they, there's no such thing, or they shouldn't be there, and yet there are some that rejoice in every um, political movement to establish 
Israel and whatever happens over there in Israel. So where, what is the correct view of Israel for the Jews now? Well, it is interesting to see the fig tree, isn't it? And uh, certainly we are interested to see that. But if we turn to Isaiah chapter 18, I think we have at least one of the many answers to that, but it gives the essence of it. Um, let's, let's read Isaiah 18, or parts of it at least, very quickly. It says, Woe, or it should read, Ho, really, to the land shadowing with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, or the rivers of Cush. It's a land outside of the biblical earth, really. That sendeth ambassadors by the sea, even the vessels of bulrushes, so apparently a maritime nation, upon the water, saying, Go ye swift messengers to a nation scattered and peeled. This is Israel, without a doubt, uh, to a people terrible from their beginning. Hitherto a nation meted out and trodden down, whose land the rivers have spoiled. All ye inhabitants of the world and dwellers of the earth, see ye, when he lifteth up an ensign on the mountains, and when the, he bloweth a trumpet, hear ye. For so the Lord said unto me, I will take my rest. And I will consider in my dwelling place like a clear heat upon herbs and like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. But notice this now. For afore the harvest, this is the time when Israel thinks they're coming to the epitome of their strength. When the bud is perfect, or that is when the grapevine is, is green, just about to ripen, and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he shall both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. The he, I think, is the Lord, but the instrument is the king of the north. So Israel and the land now is there in unbelief, by and large. Uh, they're rejoicing in their own strength. Um, it's certainly not the remnant that's there yet, although there may be some that will be the remnant of Israel at the time, uh, because the... Uh, uh, there will be those faithful, the ones that are called masculine, uh, during the tribulation that will teach the other Jews. Perhaps there's some in the land already. I wouldn't be surprised at all if the Lord were to come soon. These people would no doubt be grown people, and, uh, but not exposed to the gospel as such. So they're there primarily in unbelief, and yet it is one of the signs of the times, isn't it? The fig tree and all the trees. Any other comments or questions on that? Okay, if not, what I'd like to do is, uh, I had in my notes I wanted to read Psalm 72. This is not a real happy scene. The tribulation period is not something we really thrilled speaking about, although we're so thankful that the Lord is going to have his rightful place. But let's read what happens after the tribulation period. It's not a very long psalm. It's one that's a thrill. And uh, we, Dave mentioned it a little bit earlier, but let's go ahead and read that psalm. I think it's so beautiful. It speaks about the millennial period. Psalm 72, Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness, speaking about the Lord, and thy poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people, 
And the little hills by righteousness, he shall judge the poor of the people, he shall save the children of the needy, shall break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down, this is the Lord again, shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. And his days shall the righteous flourish in the abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river unto the ends of the earth his government, his kingdom will be universal. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. For he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, poor also, and him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy, and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem, this is the Lord Jesus, shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. And he shall live, and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba, Prayer also shall be made for him continually, or to him continually, and daily shall he be praised. There shall be a handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. And amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. When he saw the kingdom, all his... He knew that uh, this was the very thing he was looking for. And he rejoices to see the Lord Jesus, his descendant, established with a righteous throne throughout all the earth. Any other comments? Or... Okay, it's been kind of a busy day. Let's bow our heads. Blessed God, our Father, we thank you again for this privilege we have to go over these precious things. We look forward to the time, Lord Jesus, when thou wilt be vindicated and uh, we shall be at thy side, thy bride, thy wife, not only for time, but for all eternity. We thank and bless thee. We pray for help now for each one. We think especially of the young people and uh, pray that they would uh, investigate these things on their own, develop those important habits of reading and prayer in their own daily reading and prayer so that they might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank thee, we bless thee, Lord Jesus, in thy precious and alone worthy name. Amen. Amen.